Can you really be that stupid? What are you talking about? Where were you last night? I was out with the guys. Why? Well, because you didn't even tell me. You just didn't come home from work. I don't think I have to read. I told you to take your allergy medicines. You're not sleeping at night. You're snoring all the time. They're asking me a thousand questions. I don't know what to tell you. I'm busy out there trying to make room instead of just homework. Don't talk to my son. You go ahead and work. I'll talk to him. Why you're not doing? We need to grow up. So we really just need to sit down now. You just act like such a baby all the time. It just needs to get better. This is why the get up there, boy. Has limits. Six in the morning. I just need to write this down. I'm the man of the house, and I get to say. I'm telling you what I mean. You don't understand, but you're not paying attention. You don't listen. You're on your phone. You're working. You're distracted. In light of Easter uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, it reminded me of a story that I recently heard uh, about a family who decided they were going to take a trip and uh, they were going to go to the Holy Lands and visit Jerusalem and spend some time just walking in the footsteps of uh, where Jesus was. And uh, his husband and his wife decided that we're going to take along the wife's mom. And so uh, they go. And while they were there, tragically, uh, the wife's mother passes away. And uh, she, she's there, and, and they're trying to figure out how do we enjoy our trip, and we're having to deal with all this. They're meeting with the funeral home, and the funeral home director comes, and he goes, hey, I've got a proposal. He goes, we can send her back to the United States. It'll cost about $5,000 just for transport, or we can find a really beautiful place here for about $150, and we'll just bury her here in, uh, in the heart of the Holy Lands. And husband thought about it for a few moments. He goes, man, I, I just... I don't know. He goes, I think it would be best for us to send her back. And, and so you know, he goes, it, it'll cost us a little bit more, but we realize that. And funeral director kind of looked at him a little bit puzzled. He's like, so you're going to spend the $5,000 when you could spend $150 and she could be in one of the most beautiful places on the earth. And he goes, yeah, I, I just, I, we've got to send her home. He goes, 2,000 years ago, there was a man who died and three days later he rose again. And he goes, I cannot take that chance with my mother-in-law. <laughs> And I said, amen, amen. <laughs> so today we are going to continue in this series called Behind Closed Doors. Uh, week three, where we talk about marriage and relationships. And uh, man, I just want to welcome you uh, this weekend to Stone Point. And so if you are joining us uh, on uh, the Edgewood campus or online, we're grateful that you're here. And we pray that today is an encouragement to our hearts. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we began this series with the notion that all of us have a spiritual dilemma. And because of that spiritual dilemma, it keeps us isolated. And we would rather have life where we're, we're not known and where we can, in a sense, just stay behind closed doors. But that spiritual dilemma is really the root of a sin problem in all of our lives, where uh, we are separated because of our sins from a holy God. And because of that, we're also separated in many ways from other people. And so we look for ways to fill the void in our life. And for many of us, we have longed to fill it with substances. For some of us, uh, it's with our jobs. It's with uh, other things. A lot of us in this room, we really try to find a relationship, that there's someone out there that will meet our needs. The challenge with that, though, is that oftentimes we look for that fulfillment in the wrong place. And so in week one, we just said, you know what? The only thing that can truly fulfill the deepest longing in our soul is the one who created us. And he created us for a heartfelt need for 
him, uh, the relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And so we talked about that. And then last week we said that if we have that, then we can begin to yoke ourselves together with someone of a similar thought process. And that will make us a healthy image bearer and reflection of Jesus and the gospel. And so we just talked about the challenge of being that reflection to the world. And so we said, hey, husbands, what would it look like if you were the model and reflection of Jesus, that you served your bride faithfully, that you were caring and that you nourished her. And just as you look after your own body, that you would look after hers and that you would say, I'm going to esteem her and build her up. And I'm going to be the picture of the world uh, to the world of this, this man named Jesus. And so we asked you the question, how well are you doing at that? How well are you a reflection of Jesus? At the same time, we encourage the spouses, wives in here, that you would be a picture of the, the church, the body of Christ, that you would respect your husband, that you would care for him, that you uh, would love him in a way um, that says, I'm a suitable helper, Genesis 2.18, and that you would come alongside, just as we are the hands and feet of Jesus as the church, Wives, you're supposed to mutually edify your husband and be his helper. And, and so we talked about all of those challenges and uh, how we would meet those through Jesus as we would yoke ourselves together. So the, the goal is, is that we would understand what yoking means. And so we talked about that last week, is that it's two people deciding to go in the same direction, that if you had two oxen and they were pulling in separate directions, that you wouldn't have a whole lot of synergy. But let me explain real quickly, when you have two oxen going the same way, what kind of synergy is produced? Matter of fact, years ago, they did a study and they decided to have some oxen pull weights. And so they had a, the top oxen pulled about four tons, about 8,000 pounds. And then the second place oxen was just a little bit lower and he pulled around 7,600 pounds. And so together they pulled 15,600 pounds uh, if you were to put them together in terms of mathematical equation. But they decided what would it look like if we actually paired these two oxen together and how much would they pull? And so a lot of people thought, well, maybe they'll pull 17 or 18,000 pounds. But because of synergy and this idea of inertia with two forces pulling together, they were able to pull 26,000 pounds together. And so you, you think about that. It, it was just an incredible weight together. And I think that's the goal of relationships. And so today, as we dive into this week three of Behind Closed Doors, I want to just give you the practical side. And so I've already told you, here's the deal. All of our relationships are hindered because of a spiritual dilemma. They can be healed through Jesus. And when two healthy people come together with the same similar values and purposes and the same mission, you can be an image bearer to the world, not just as the church, the people who gather here today, but even in our relationships, in our marriages, we can faithfully represent God, the gospel, and the hope offered through Jesus. And so the deal is this, you go, if I'm going to be married and I'm going to be a display of Jesus to the world, then shouldn't it be fun to be married? I mean, shouldn't it be something that we enjoy? And so the question is this, how do we get better at this? And so today is just a message of practicality. And so if you're in here and you go, my marriage really stinks right now, then today here's five things that'll help you. If you're in here and you go, I really am hoping that my marriage, when we get married, is really good. Then guess what? You're in the right place today because we're gonna give you five ways that you can improve your marriage. Maybe you're here and you're like, I am single. I don't wanna marry the dude because all men are are crazy, okay? Maybe you're a man and you're saying the same thing about a woman, I don't know. Uh, the, the deal is this, this can apply to all relationships, period. 
all relationships, if you take these five things and put them in the, in the context of a relationship, they will work. And so what are they? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so the very first thing is, is this idea of selfless servanthood. Selfless servanthood. It's the idea that we see modeled through Jesus. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me just real quick uh, to Philippians 2. Uh, and before you get there, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you James 4. James 4, 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the idea of James is simply this, is what is the problem with all of your relationships, including your marriage, if you're married here today? And the answer according to James chapter 4 is you, you, you're the problem. Now, what's crazy is, is I think most of us, we live under the idea that the problem that we're having at work or the problem that we're having with our kids or the problem that we're having with our wife is what? Because of them. And if they would change, and if they wouldn't respond this way, and if he would give me a raise, or he would do this, or if she would do that, if she would quit nagging, then you would think, okay, my problem with this relationship would be solved. But ultimately, what we realize is that what causes fights and quarrels among us, verse 2 in James says, hey, you, you think, you covet, you even desire to kill. And it's because you think you want something and you can't have it. It's this idea that you're selfish. And I know that it's a real struggle for most of us in here to admit that you're selfish. But the bottom line is, you are. You're selfish. And we are the problem with most of our relational issues. The challenge is it's so much easier, isn't it, to point and go, man, if she wasn't so annoying, man, if he would quit, you know, leaving his underwear on the floor, man, if he would quit staying up so late, if he would take out the trash, if he would do more, if he would help with the kids. The problem is, is that at the end of the day, what causes fights and quarrels among us is our own selfishness. It's this war that's being waged deep in our soul. And so the question is, is, how do we know that we're selfish? Well, here's how you'll know that you're selfish. Just get married and live with someone else for about a week, okay? And so you're here and you're like, I don't really think I'm that selfish. No, no listen, if you had someone else in your apartment, you'd realize you're selfish. Now you'll realize when two college freshmen ladies get a dorm room together, why they call home so often within 36 hours. I cannot believe I'm living with this crazy person. Listen, that's how all of us men feel too in the first 36 hours of marriage, right? <laughs> So how do we begin to move forward? It's Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is the idea. In verses 1 through 5, it just says, So if there be any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from his love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interest of others. And then in verse five, it'll say, hey, have the same attitude as Christ, this mindset as Jesus. And then in verse six, it says, this one, meaning Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, death on the cross. So let me explain this to you real quickly. 
Jesus, the creator of everything we see and know, according to Colossians 1, who sits at the right hand of the Father, would leave the proper abode of a heavenly dwelling place where it is perfect and pure, and he is in the presence of a triune God as he exists in the fullness of the deity of God as himself, right? Would humble himself and come to earth for you and for me. That's a selfless servanthood. That's what Jesus means when he says, I did not come to what be served, but to, ser- to give, to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what he meant. And so how do we take our relationships to another level? Here it is. Realize that in our core of who we are in the very depth of our soul, we're selfish and, and we need to become selfless servants, modeling Jesus everywhere we go particularly in the home behind closed doors. We need to watch our tone. We need to ask meaningful questions. We need to seek to be patient. We need to be more loving. We need to be more kind and we need to deflect far less often. It's not somebody else's problem. And so we are selfish and our selfishness will definitely hinder oneness with someone else. Amen? Time and time and time again, you and I, as our selfishness exists, will create tension. And that tension will suck the life out of our marriages and our relationships until we realize that it's time for us to give in, to wave the white flag and to become more selfless. And I'll tell you, the only way that you do that is if you can become more vulnerable with who you are and the way that God has created you to be. And so the idea is becoming vulnerable. So the essence of the whole closed doors series, behind closed doors, is that you and I are not very vulnerable. It doesn't come naturally to us to expose all the moral dilemmas and all the failures that we have in our life. Like most of us in this room, we don't just share everything we have. We don't, we don't love to tell everybody else about our failures and what's going on in our mind. I often have said this as the pastor at Stone Point. If you knew what was going on in my mind during the week, you wouldn't let me stand on this stage. And the reason why is because in, in uh, of myself, I'm, I'm a failure when it comes to living in holiness to a God who gave everything up for me. And so I know that I'm a work in progress. And so that's why I live in community with other people. It's why I'm often confessing sin patterns. It's why I'm often sharing with other people the nature of my sin. It's why I also live in vulnerability with my own wife in community. So she knows my habits and my hangups and she knows my moral dilemmas and she knows that there can what? be healing through Christ and through honesty with one another. The challenge is, is that if there's vulnerability, then it means we kind of put ourselves out there and there's a huge risk in vulnerability, right? And the vulnerability is that we would actually share something that's meaningful to us, even if it is very difficult to talk about, and that somebody would what? Either use it to their advantage or they would share it with someone else or they would betray our trust or that somehow they may just not love us because they now know even the dark places of our heart. The deal is, though, is that this has been happening for centuries. Think about it. All of what we fear in vulnerability actually happened in Genesis 3. And so think about this. A few weeks ago, we said that all of our isolation and life behind closed doors is a result of a spiritual dilemma. 
And if that's the case, then the question is, is why did the spiritual dilemma incur? And it was because of disobedience. But because of disobedience, it also causes us to not want to live a life of vulnerability. Look at me real quick with me in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And so as I flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it just simply says in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then look at verse 7, what it says. And both... And then what? The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So as a result of eating the fruit, the spiritual dilemma crept in and now they both know that they are what? Naked and what? Ashamed. So right before they ate, they were naked and unashamed. And as they ate, their eyes are open and now they're naked, they're ashamed and they're fearful. Verse 8 is going to tell you they're going to run and hide. But look at the latter part of verse 7. It says, as their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, and then they, se- they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. So think about it. They did what they shouldn't have done, and now they're found out. And the, the very sin that they just created is now exposed. And they run and they, they get, what, loincloths and they make leaves together and they clothe themselves. And what's interesting is to me is that they actually clothe their differences. I mean, think about that. If you look back in the little Bible story book in Genesis 3, you're going to see Adam and Eve covered with fig leaves. And what do they cover? Their differences. And you know, we've been covering our differences ever since. Like that's our goal. Our goal is to keep our differences isolated. We don't want you to know why we're different than you. We don't want to expose the very things that are dark in our hearts, the very crevices that we don't understand. And so we work really hard to cover things up, don't we? I mean, we, we, like we, we spend lots of energy making sure we're not found out. It's why guys in here don't tell everything that's actually happening in their minds and their hearts to their wives. Because if she knew what I have done, she may not love me anymore. If he knew what I've spent, he may what? Take my card away, right? It's why we don't live in open honesty. But what's interesting is, is that we're really good at playing the game. I don't know if y'all realize this, but Chick-fil-A actually will interview um, multiple times before they hire someone. Uh, They're required to interview at least three times. And so the first interview they have is because you're going to dress your best, you're going to act your best, and you're going to say polite things. They're going to ask you a question and you're going to go, it was my pleasure to answer it, sir, right? And you're going to give them an answer. And the second time around, when you meet with other executives and other people in the store, you're going to kind of lower your guard and they're going to get to see a little bit more of a version of yourself. The first time they interview, they get the the well-polished, cleaned up person, right? The second time they interview, they're going to ask questions and you're going to begin to express a handful of more things. They're hoping that by the time they bring you around for that third or fourth interview, they've actually gotten to see for the first time a little bit of the real you. And they may put you in situations where they may see some of the darker crevices of your heart, about your anger in a kitchen, and about how you respond to coworkers. Here's what's ironic. In all the churches I've ever been a part of, you know how many times you typically interview a pastor? One time. 
You know what you do? You listen to a couple of his sermons. You never call all of his references. And then five years later, you have an oh crap moment when you realize we've gotten a guy whose anger has made a mess of this place. And the question is why? It's because the very first time you see a person, it's easy for them to what fool you. But the longer you get to know people, the more you see who they are, right? Now, I'll tell you, one of the reasons we don't want to just fess up to who we are right off the bat is because we're afraid that if people really know us, they won't love us. But here's the great thing about vulnerability is that if you'll be vulnerable and you'll allow someone to know you, it's always better to be known and fully loved than to be loved and never really known. And I think there's so many marriages in this room, so many relationships that you have with friends, even coworkers or other people, that they really don't know you. And you've never really had meaningful conversation and you've never allowed someone just to peel the layers back in your soul and to ask you meaningful conversations that will actually cause you some risk because you do answer and you have those conversations, you go, I'm going to put myself out there. And here's the deal. You can know me and you can know all my junk, but at the end of the day, I would rather put it out there and you love me for the way I am than for me to fake it the rest of our lives, our marriage, and for us just to have this casual love. And so that's the goal of becoming not only servants, but also this idea of becoming vulnerable. And so as you begin to do those things, you're already beginning the process of this third step, which is rejecting mediocrity. Now, here's, I think, an area for so many of us in this room that like you could note, put a little star on it. Like you could underline this idea of rejecting mediocrity. I think one of the challenges that we oftentimes have in so many of our relationships is this idea of mediocrity. First John um, chapter four, verse 10. Um, simply says this, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The idea is that God loved us even at our worst, right? And that he became the propitiation. He became the, the bridge for our sin problem. And as he does that, why did he do that? He did that because he's a selfless servant. And he did that because of our vulnerable sin condition. And so he does that. But here's what's interesting. Think about what that cost him. It cost him everything. It cost him his entire life. He laid down his life for his friends. He he did not come to what? To be served, but he came to serve and he gives life as a ransom for many. Think about that. As he lays his life down for his friends, he does everything he could for us. And I think that's the goal in love is that we reject the idea of mediocrity. Jesus gave everything. But what's crazy about our love is that we, we kind of condition ourselves to only give a little bit of it. It's almost like if we give it out in just small samples, like little portions. It's like we're saving some of the energy for ourselves. But here's the deal. What if you only had one month to live? How would you love differently? What questions would you ask? What things would you do? I can tell you this, if I had one month to live and I knew it, I could promise you this. My life insurance policy is enough that Kelly will have plenty as I go, but we would spend the next month loving fully. 
embracing each other, doing spontaneous things. And I promise you this, I would reject passivity and apathy and any other thing that's attributed to the relationships that matter most to me. But the thing is, is we don't live life as if we're dying, right? We live life as if we have many, many, many years to go, as if there's other hopes and dreams out there that aren't going to become a reality. And so what if we just rejected this idea of of passivity and and apathy, and we said, you know what, we're just going to reject mediocrity. Matter of fact, this is actually becoming one of the core values here at Stone Point in our working environment. One of the things that I despise most as a leader here is mediocrity. Why? Because we have so much to offer. And I'll tell you, at the very end of the day, if you are are dripping with sweat and you worked as hard as you possibly can, then praise God. Why? Because his mercies are new tomorrow. See, we think, oh, well, they're going to channel energy, right? Like we're just going to channel energy. And so we think, hey, I'm going to do a little bit today because I can put off more for tomorrow. No, no. If, if If you can do it today, do it today. Don't put it off till tomorrow, right? And so I think so many times we miss this in our relationships. And so I just want to encourage you that you would what? Love well. And I'll tell you where that love begins. It loves, that love begins with Jesus. Are you pursuing him well? For instance, if I were just to ask you the questions, you're leaving today and I caught you somewhere or one of our staff caught you somewhere and said, hey, what's God teaching you right now in his word? what would you say? I mean, would you fumble around? Would you go, well, you know what, my devotional this morning? No, that's not what my question was. I said, what is God teaching you in the word? Not so what is someone else teaching you? What is God teaching you in the word? Hey, did you sit at the feet of Jesus this morning? Hey, have you made it a daily occurrence of abiding in him? John 15, five. And if so, then what are you giving to someone else? Because we can only give what we receive, right? And there's so many of us in here, men, let me just speak to you real quickly. If you're the display of Jesus to your bride, man, how many of you are just running on fumes? And how many of you really have nothing great to offer her other than your money at the end of a day? Now, listen, what if she just got your love? And what if she, what if she got your passion and your zeal, not only for Jesus, but for her as your bride? Think about that for just a second. Men, what if you didn't just take the words? Oh man, that's a clever point. Oh, that's a good word there, Brandon. What if you took the words and you applied this in one area right here, you just said, in the next 30 days, I'm going to reject mediocrity in all of my marriage relationship. And I'm gonna pursue my wife, my husband with zeal and with fervor. And I'm going to begin by pursuing Jesus. And as I pursue Jesus daily, I'm asking that he'll give me an overflow that will just fill my cup into someone else's. And I pray that it begins with my wife. And so I'll tell you, here's the deal. If you're not very patient right now, you're not very kind, you're not very loving, you're not very selfless, then where does it begin? Yeah, it begins with your selfishness, with the sin problem, right? But where do you get filled? You get filled with Jesus. And as you're filled with Jesus, then you got something else to offer. And here's my goal. This is just as a husband. People go, hey, man, did you you catch that show? And I'm like, no, I I didn't catch that show. Hey, man, like literally, I have no idea what's going on in the world today. It's probably not good as a pastor here trying to lead people towards changing the world, right? And, And here's the crazy thing is it's because I don't have time for TV. 
and I'm not trying to take a shot and I'm certainly not trying to build myself up. What I'm just saying at the end of the day is I get up, I want to study God's word. I want to love people well. When I get home, I want to love my spouse and I want to love my kids well. And then I want to go to bed and I want to be dog tired and I want to have served well. And unfortunately, I just don't have a whole lot of time for myself. And I, I can't wait for the day that my kids are out of the house and I get some time for myself back, right? What's that going to look like, right? But the deal is this. My point and my perspective is, is, just, is this. Think about this. What in our world right now could we give up a little bit of to make us more of a selfless servant that loved well? And I think that's the question. And you go, I'm not really sure. Well, that brings me to my fourth point, which is then you need to become a better learner. You need to become a better learner. Like you and I need to have a better eye for observation. Like we need to be observing what's going on in our lives. Now, being a learner is not just observation of like, hey, my wife's doing the dishes and I realize that our kitchen's dirty and I probably could step in and help. Now, men, I will tell you, that is a heck of a way to get plugged in and to become a servant. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Yes, you can be observing in ways that you could step up and do something. You should do that. But what I'm really talking about is this idea of discipleship. How, who are you learning from? One of the things that, that has just come to my attention here lately, particularly in our re-engaged ministry, which is happening on Sunday nights, and uh, there's about 50 couples going through it right now, but the last two testimonies that have occurred on Sunday nights from this stage have been an incredible picture of God's grace. And they've been a picture of God's grace in their ignorance. What do I mean by that? See, Paul would say in, in his letters that he was ignorant. And what he meant by that was this. He goes, I was zealous for God, and I thought that the best thing for me to do would be to kill anyone or destroy anything that had anything to do with Jesus and the church. Later, I would realize that I was an ignorant fool, that actually Jesus was God's plan for the world. And then I joined the team. But he goes, before I was on the team, I thought what I was doing was right. So as these couples shared the last two weekends, here's what they said. Our marriage has been a learning process because we never had it modeled for us. We never had a picture of the gospel in our home. We never had a dad that was a picture of Jesus. We never had a mom that was a picture of purity in the church. And so they have literally had, what, two broken people trying to fulfill each other and learn more about Jesus all at the same time. And so I, as you can assume, their relationships started to be what? As a mess. And it's okay if our relationships are a mess because at the core of all of us, we're a mess, right? But as we learn more about who God is and we reject apathy and mediocrity, one of the things we also do is we become a studier of becoming more like Jesus. It's this discipleship issue. And when we become a disciple of Jesus and also of marriages, then guess what? We see things happening. And it's the idea that Paul would talk about to his, his buddy, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he's going to say a couple of things. In verses 1 and 2, he says, You then, speaking of Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's just the process of discipleship. The way it works is, is that you or I would learn about Jesus. We would learn about marriage. We'd learn about parenting. And then as faithful followers of Jesus, guess what? We just in turn, we turn right to our right or to our left and we go, hey, there's gotta be another man or a woman that we could teach about what we've learned. Got that? That's discipleship. 
That's how that happens. Well, discipleship is not just, hey, man, will you just teach me more about the Bible? Discipleship is in every area of our life, including the idea of marriage and relationships. Matter of fact, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, a little bit further down in 26, or 22 through 26, it'll say this. So, hey, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from your heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they were breed quarrels. He goes, here's the deal. What would it look like if we set aside our youthful passions and whatever it looked like if we became more about who God is and we pursued God through righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on God from a pure heart. And then he goes, what would it look like if we avoided foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels? So hold on, what? So you mean a lot of the relationship issues that I have actually become the foolishness that have been breeding quarrels? Yes. Some of the things we do are just because we did not know better. Now I'll tell you, that works in in week one and even year one of your marriage, right? But in year 20, it's really hard to say, hey, hey, babe, I just didn't know better, right? Over time, we have to become disciples, not only of Jesus, but of who he's called us to be. And we need to observe healthy marriages. And so for some of you in this room, here's your goal. You just need to go, hey, God, would you just put in my life someone who has a faithful God-honoring marriage so that I can learn from them, that I can ask some questions, that we can have some conversation. And then for others of you, you go, no, I feel like we're past that point. So, okay, then that means that you are the one that's going to do the discipling. It's time for you to be praying, God, would you just put a young couple in our presence that we could disciple and that we could teach and that we could instruct some of the things that have helped us over the years become more like you. That's the goal. Got that? Yes? And then it just leads us to this fifth thing, and that is the practical step of living out this idea of the hope and the gospel and the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, as you think, okay, that's cool. That's a good fifth one. Like, you just kind of tacked that one on. That's awesome. No, 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 no. Here's what I want you to realize. I saved the best for last. If you don't live this out right here as step five, then the first four things will never happen, ever. It just won't happen. So for instance, if, if you don't understand the gospel and Jesus's forgiveness in your life, I promise you, you will not become a servant that's selfless. You won't do that. You will not become an imitator of Jesus that reflects the hope of the gospel. You will not become a learner you will, not, you will not reject passivity and mediocrity in your relationships. You won't do any of those things. And here's why. It's because the gospel brings forth life. Colossians 3.13 says that we should bear one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we should forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. So we should also forgive. It's the same thing that Ephesians 4.32 says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another is Christ. And what? As God in Christ has forgiven us. So here's the goal. In order for you and I to have the solution for selfishness, we have to turn to the gospel and the servant example in Jesus. That's what makes us a selfless servant, right? Think about that. If we're going to overcome a fear of intimacy and being known, then we got to allow ourselves to realize that Jesus called us out of darkness and into the wonderful light of Jesus, right? So think about this. The very things that you've been trying to cover up are the very things that Jesus heals through his forgiveness. 
Like, here's the deal. You've already been exposed. Everything that you're trying to hide, everything that you're trying to keep from everyone else, Jesus has already paid for. It's already been forgiven. And when you can embrace that, then you can live with vulnerability. Think about that. Think about this idea of mediocrity. Jesus gave up everything so that you can be a mediocre Christian. No. He's what unleashes us to live with passion and with zeal and in his glory and to be a Christ-like example and a display of health to the world. Now, here's the deal. If you and I can embrace God's forgiveness and we can reject mediocrity in our relationships, there's two things that are gonna happen as a result. Number one, people are gonna flock to Stone Point. Why? Because they're gonna go, wow, they're the place that can, can see marriages healed, okay? And number two, there's going to be lots of people that realize that God is good in a community that overall has lots of darkness and in a county where there's lots of darkness that's prevalent. Why? Because you and I display the hope of Jesus and we reject the mediocrity of just being subpar. Do you understand that? God didn't create you and I to be subpar. He created us to live a life of hope and godliness as we bask in the glory of God, his goodness and his forgiveness. And then guess what? It just makes us learners. The more we see God in us, the more we desire to learn more about him and the more we desire to learn more about his creation. And that's the goal. And so may we embrace the hope of Jesus through the forgiveness offered on the cross. And you go, listen, Pastor Brandon, I, I get that, but man, I cannot forgive this woman. You don't know what she's done. I would just hate for you to stand in front of Jesus one day and you to expect a measure of forgiveness that you're not willing to measure out yourself. And so I would just say, even in the, the very core of your being where you go, I just struggle to forgive. Listen, without the gospel, you won't be able to forgive. And here's why, because you just don't have it in you. But if you can just turn that over to Jesus and go, Jesus, I don't understand this idea of forgiveness. And I don't understand how I can continue to offer it again and again to this woman who somehow I married and she's crazy. God, I'm just asking for a measure of your forgiveness and grace. And I'm asking you to teach me to forgive like you have because when I come back down to the very core of who I am, I realize I'm selfish. And I realize that I've got a problem and that if you hadn't forgiven me, then I'm gonna live in isolation forever. And so God, thank you for healing there. And God, would you help me to offer that same measure of forgiveness in which I have received from you? That's the goal, got it? I think Tim Keller says in a way that we can all understand as we leave this place today. And it just says this, do for your spouse, right, what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. And I think that applies to every category in which we've talked about this morning. And so church, may you go, and may you be the good news, and may you be the hope of glory, and may you be a light that shines in the darkness, according to Philippians 2.15. May you and I shine like stars in the universe. And may we be a blessing to everyone we come in contact with. But you, may you and I not live with this crazy ideology that we can bless everyone except those behind our own doors. 
May we start right there with those that God has entrusted our care, our spouses and our children. And may we be the blessed hope of Jesus to them in a world that so desperately needs a display of the good news. Amen? Let me pray for us, church. God, we love you and we thank you for the pleasure of knowing you and abiding in you. And I pray, God, that as we leave this place this morning, that you would fill our hearts with the strength and the measure and the goodness of Jesus. And God, may we be the disciples that you've called us to be. And in turn, may we not just teach others about your word, but God, may we just teach them what it looks like to have a healthy marriage, what it looks like to parent our kids faithfully, what it looks like to love you and to care for you and to be nurtured by you. And so God, I just pray for every single one of us in this room that we would realize what the gospel does for us. And I pray we would become servants, that we'd become vulnerable, that we would reject mediocrity, and that we would learn and pursue you because you are the hope of the gospel and forgiveness in our lives. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.